All right, so we're in a new series called Eye to Eye. Uh, if you were here last week, you know the biblical foundation that I tried to explain to you. It comes from Israel's great prophet, the prophet Isaiah, who had prophesied that when the long-awaited for Messiah would come, that the watchmen in Jerusalem would see together eye to eye, which is where that actual saying comes from. Where, that's where it, it began. The people who would see and know and worship and follow the Messiah would, upon his arrival, they would begin to understand things, see their Savior, see their world in new ways and in similar fashions. In fact, it was to be a mark of the followers of the Messiah. They would see him in their world in new, similar ways. But here's the problem, and you all know this, the Savior has come. But we have a really hard time seeing eye to eye, don't we? Seeing our world in new and similar ways. It's an old joke I ran into this week. It said a guy walks into a bar and the bartender asks him, what would you like? What would I like, says Bob, a bigger house, more money, and a more attractive wife. <laughs> no, says the barman patiently. I meant, what do you want? To win the lottery, for my mother-in-law to get off my back, and for my child to be born healthy. What's it to be, says the barman less patiently? A boy or a girl, I don't care, Bob said. You misunderstand me, says the barman impatiently. I only asked what you want to drink. Oh, says Bob, I see. Why didn't you say so? What have you got? Nothing at all, says the barman. I'm perfectly healthy. You can file that one at her dad joke later today. <laughs> Why do I share it? Because it's a story of two guys with, with two different ways of seeing things, right? They, had, they, they, they didn't hear each other. They weren't listening to each other. And even when they did, they didn't understand each other. It's a conversation, in some sense, about worldviews. Now, maybe you've had a conversation with a family member or a coworker and it ventured into some controversial areas as they usually do. And suddenly, it's like you can't believe what they're saying, right? I mean, and I know, I, you know, I've done this too. It's like, man, I thought you were smarter than that, right? Or then we kind of impute judgment, or I thought you were a better person than that. Arguments ensue. Motives get imputed, and relationships wind up being broken. And so the goal over these coming weeks is really twofold, as I've explained it. The first is for us to see things the way Jesus sees things. We're, we're looking to understand Jesus' view of the world, not our own. And I have to warn you, Jesus' worldview is, is less than comfortable sometimes. It's not likely to fit perfectly in with your worldview. Of course it won't, right? It was that same great prophet in Israel's history, Isaiah, who on the part of God said, my ways are not your ways. So if we're going through this, this series and, and, and your worldview, right, lines up perfectly with what you think Jesus might, might, might think, you've likely just created a deified version of yourself that you're worshiping. Jesus' worldview should be challenging to us because we're human beings. Secondly, we want to understand our friends and our family members and our kids and our neighbors who draw different conclusions about life because they see things differently. They have different worldviews. They're not your enemy. We're not in a fight with them. 
We're never going to convince them that we're right in, in a battle. See, when we understand these things, right, and understand them, it, it, it helps. It replaces ill will with illumination. It moves people from being enemies fighting with one another to people that can relate again and dialogue because they listen and understand. Conclusions might not be changed, but relationships are maintained. That's how the gospel takes root in our homes and our communities. I was just talking to a friend this morning. He said, yeah, you, can, you could win the fight and lose the friend. You could, you could win the argument and lose the soul. You can't fight and battle people into thinking like you. But you can help them understand what you think and then persuade them that it's true. Not that you're right, but that it's true. And so that's what I want to begin with today, this topic of truth. And again, our pursuit is to see things the way Jesus sees things. If you were here last week, you know we kicked off the series looking at popular and competing worldviews. And I didn't use all the, the uh, philosophical names for these things. I kind of brought them, tried to bring them down into things we would understand better. But we looked at the, the competing worldviews, the competing ways of seeing things in our culture that are popular today. And what you need to understand is every worldview makes a claim about what is true. Everybody makes a claim about truth. For example, one of the worldviews we took a look at last week that's, that's prevalent, it might be the most prevalent worldview out there today, is something called naturalism. Or as I described it to you, it's the old computer acronym, WYSIWYG. A vast majority of Americans now believe that what you see is what you get. This worldview, and, it, and it's popular, is that all that is real is what is physical, material, and natural. All that's real is what we can experience with our five senses. That's the only solid reality. And according to this worldview, religious or spiritual experiences or doctrines, they're just imaginary, made-up superstitions, illusions, or wishful thinking that just help people cope in a hard world. They have nothing to do with reality or what could be known. Academic names for this worldview, right? Uh, things that, that you might hear it called. Um, naturalism, right? The idea that nature is all there is. Materialism, belief that the material world is all there is. Atheism is, is a naturalistic worldview, right? Atheism just says there is no God. All that I see is all that there is. In fact, I would say agnosticism, which is the belief that there might be a God, but you can't know him. You should probably include that in that category, too, because folks that are agnostics make their daily decisions as if the WYSIWYG worldview were true. They, our worldview helps us decide, make life's decisions, and if you're an agnostic, you believe that you can't really know God, and so as a result, you're going to make decisions as if all that you see is all that there is, right? See, in this worldview... It's important to understand, because many of our children are, are reared in this worldview. In this worldview, we become just cosmic accidents. We exist just by the luck of good fortune. The atoms all just worked out right. There's no plan, there's no design, it's just random results. It worked out all right. And we're here as a result of time and chance and matter. When we die, we die. The matter rearranges itself. There's nothing of lasting meaning, therefore, or purpose or value. That's all just kind of made up. Now, naturalists, people that believe this, make claims about truth, and we build our lives on, on claims of truth. 
This worldview leads directly to moral relativism, since any one person's culture or perspective would be just as good as any other, right? I mean, it's just all truth is just made up. I mean, it's cultural. So your cultural truth is just as valid as my cultural tr truth. There's no way to say with any authority that anything is ever objectively right or wrong in all times for all of time in all places. All we have are opinions, man-made laws, social norms, prejudices, and personal tastes and whims. Any sense of a universal moral code or virtue or truth or beauty are terminated. See, a naturalist claim, just to boil it down, would be there is no truth. Here's the truth. There's no truth. It's all just made up. Now, that's probably the, the most predominant worldview we run into today. Here's a second one that's, that's pretty popular. Individualism, as I described it to you last week, this is looking out for number one. That's this worldview. It's a very postmodern way of seeing the world where, for example, you choose to maybe believe in God if you wish to do so, but you can't compel anybody else to believe in God. If it's right for that person, then it becomes part of that person's unique life story. But he can't impose that unique view on anyone else unless that person freely chooses to incorporate that same notion into his or her story. In this way of thinking, there is truth, but it's not absolute, right? I have my truth. It works for me. You have your truth. It works for you. But there's no absolute truth. In fact, and you're, you, this is going to start to sound familiar here, Anybody who would claim that there's absolute truths, there are things that are absolutely right and wrong, actually is a closed-minded person, likely bigoted against others, that is using this concept of absolute truth to, to acquire power and to control others. Right? The, these folks, that, that, and there's a lot of folks that believe this, they would say, hey, your absolute truth claim is scary to me because I think you're going to try to infringe on my freedoms and choices with it. So here you have two very popular worldviews, two very popular ways of seeing things. One says, look, there is no truth. It's just all kind of made up. Every culture has a different truth. There's no absolute truth. And then you have another, another very predominant worldview that says, well, there is truth, but it's, not, it's a relative truth, Right? It's not absolute. So here's my question. Which is it? Right? And how does Jesus see this? Those are two popular ways. How does Jesus see this, these claims of truth? Well, there is a fascinating... I never saw this through this light until I, I started examining these worldviews, right? There's this fascinating story that Jesus' disciple John records when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Some of you know the story. We, we talk about it at Easter time every year, right? And, and here's what's the backstory, okay? Jesus had been making all these bold claims about being the king, the king of the Jews, and, and in many ways, the king of everything. And so that was very threatening to the Jews. And so the Jews had him arrested, but they, because they were living under Roman power, didn't have the ability to execute Jesus because of that claim. And so they dragged Jesus before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, because Pilate has the ability to crucify Jesus. And so Pilate, you know, he doesn't really want to get in the middle of this, but he examines Jesus and, and Jesus' claims. And, and I want you to hear, hear the, the discussion. 
right? This is a serious charge. For Pilate, there is one king and one God, and they're both the same person, Caesar. Not this rebel-rousing character, carpenter-turned-rabbi, Jesus. So, so here's how John says it went down. Pilate hears, hears these charges from the Jews, and, and, and John writes that Pilate went back inside the palace after, after talking with them. He summons Jesus, and he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that's a question about truth, right? It's just an objective truth question. Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus re re replies, I love this. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, let me ask you a question. Is that your truth, or is that some other truth that some others have bought and you are buying into or asking me about their truth? Which is it? Jesus always asks these questions that you can just see the person going, what? So Pilate goes, look, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people, the chief priest, handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus now makes his own truth claim. Jesus says, my kingdom, my kingdom. I'm a king. So Pilate responds, You are a king then, said Pilate. A truth claim that definitely was dangerous to Pilate's, right? This is a claim of absolute truth. And what was it to Pilate? Threatening. Absolute truth claims can be very threatening to our positions, right? It's, this is going to clamp down on Pilate's own expression of his own truth. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is, okay, this is big. This is Jesus in the last hours of his life. He's standing before the most powerful man that he was going to stand before, at least from a worldly perspective. And he's explaining to this man, Pilate, and to us, by the way, why he was born and why he came into the world. Everybody should stop and highlight this, right? Wouldn't you agree? Like, this is a big deal. This is why I'm here. This is why I was born. This is why I was came. Does anybody, all of us Christians out there that have been studying this forever, does anybody know what Jesus said, the reason he was born and the reason he came is? Bang. I don't know who said it, but that's what he said, completely unexpected. Jesus said, I, I, I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm here to testify to the truth. And then he said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus, friends, came into the world to testify to the truth. Let me repeat that again because it's super important we get this into our heads. Jesus said that he came into the world to testify to the truth. And here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying three things, really. The first is this. There is such a thing as an absolute truth. And he was here to testify to it. An absolute right and wrong. I'm here to show you. Second, right? Second, truth is so important that I left my throne in heaven to come here and testify to you about it. That's how important this is. I didn't just send you like a missive. I didn't dictate something and send it down. I didn't have a voice come from the heavens and shake the mountains. I'm here, it was this important that I showed up. That's how important truth is. And then thirdly, right, 
Thirdly, there are apparently people who are on the other side of truth, who aren't on the side of truth, but on the other side of it, the side of lies. And they're likely unknowingly over there. That's why Jesus is here. Really interesting, right? There's real truth. It's super important you know it. There's a good chance you might be on the wrong side of it. You know what Pilate's response was to that? It's... it's, it's, it's Pretty famous, and it sums up a debate that rages on even till this morning. Pilate looks at Jesus after Jesus said all those things, and he goes, what is the truth? What is the truth? And here's the deal. Pilate didn't ask the question because he wanted Jesus to give him an answer. In fact, if you read the story, as soon as Pilate says, what is the truth, he has Jesus dragged away. He wasn't looking for an answer. He asked it mockingly, disparagingly, dismissively, if you will, as if to say, truth, psh, what's truth? There's no truth, and not necessarily because he didn't believe that there was no truth. You know why Pilate didn't, didn't dismiss Jesus and didn't, didn't want to hear it? Just because of that. He didn't want the truth. And, and, and that, friends, is where I can't help but wonder, when we read this story, we always make Pilate the bad guy, but isn't there a little bit of Pilate in all of us? Isn't there a little bit in all of us where you're like, I don't really want to know the truth, because if I know the truth, then it might make calls on me. Right? I mean, why do we deny and disparage and dismiss absolute truth? And we all do it to one degree or another. We do it because if, if there is absolute truth, it's going to make claims on us that we might want to not, not want to deal with. So we either deny that absolute truth exists, like naturalists, right? Or we make it relative to our own feelings and experiences. But it's not absolute. It's not true for all time and all people. Now, Paul understood this was a, a common mindset of the day in his day and our day. And so he tried to explain it to the church that he had established in Rome this way. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And what do they do? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why is God so upset? Because people are suppressing the truth. And the truth matters. The truth is important. And when people knowingly suppress the truth, bad things happen to people God loves. That's why God is upset about people who suppress and hide the truth. He goes on. Since what, what may be known about God is plain to them, to everyone, because God's made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made, so that people are without excuse. God's saying, look, I have not hidden the truth from anyone. I've put it on display everywhere. All you need to do is open your eyes. You don't have to be a rocket science to look and see my power and my divine nature. It's all here in creation for all to see. I've made this truth so obvious, you can't deny it. But as you know, we as a people have come up with all kinds of ways to deny it. I love his conclusion. He goes, for, for although they knew God, and by the way, in Romans 1, he, he uses they, and in Romans 2, he turns it to you. So this is kind of all of us. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And in so many ways, right? Like, do you ever watch the news and go, what? Like, what? How did you, what? I don't understand where you're coming. I don't know how you got that. Because they don't see things the way, the way Jesus sees things. We don't see things the way Jesus sees things. Right? We come up with these things because we either believe there is no absolute truth or we believe we can all have our own truth. And it leads to outright silliness. And truth matters. This is why God gets upset. We're screwing up truth, screws up people. I, I want to give you a few examples of how important truth is, right? Um, there used to be an old game show called Truth or Consequences. I, I'm too young to remember that, but I've heard tale of that show. And on the show, as I've been informed, you either had to tell the truth, and if you didn't tell the truth, you had to face a consequence. See, in, in the real world, in reality, it's not truth or consequences, but truth has consequences. I come from a family of smokers, right? For most people, I, I understand that the smell of cigarette smoke today, for, for many of you, it's off-putting, right? Like, I've been with a lot of folks, and they're like, oh, gosh, right? When I smell smoke, I feel cozy. It just makes me like, <sighs> reminds me of my grandfather's house, you know. You go in there in the winter, especially when it was all closed up, and you'd have to kind of cut your way through the smoke. <laughs> my uncle smoked, and he lived with him. And then my mom, my, my, my beloved mom, my mom smoked, at, and so she smoked at our home. And so I like the smell of smoke. But here's the deal. Sometime in the 1970s, the truth came out about cigarette smoking, right? That it was extremely dangerous to your health. Now, if you remember, the tobacco industry said, that might be your truth, but it's not my truth, right? That I have a different truth. And they fought that truth off for a long time. Why? Because they believed that that truth was going to infringe on their freedoms to market those cigarettes and to make the kind of money they wanted to make. Just like Pilate, right? They were no different. Well, the truth came out in the 70s about cigarette smoking, but in my family, who I love, it, they did not either fully embrace the truth, um, they, they chose, because it had consequences of embracing that truth, uh, they chose to continue on smoking. And all of them suffered, and suffer today terribly because of it. My, my, my mom, who, who I know is watching, and she knows I love her, my mom has terrible COPD. She can't walk two feet because of the truth. Truth has consequences. Steve Fisher used to be our old youth pastor. I, I went to his wedding in Boston one time, and, and Joan and I were driving back from the wedding, and some other folks from Mendham that had gone to the wedding were driving back with us. I, what's the big highway that goes up to Boston? It's a big wide one. Is it 81 or something, maybe? It, it's, it's a huge highway. It's like five or six lanes in each direction. And so we're driving home, and you know, we're, we're doing the obligatory speed limit. And uh, we're all making good time because we got to get back. And all of a sudden, on this five-lane road in one direction, comes a car in the other direction. Like, you can't believe that there's somebody driving on a five-lane highway the wrong way. She missed the instructions. She, she didn't see the sign. She went the wrong way. But the reality is, the truth was she was going the wrong way, and the truth had consequences for her as I saw play out in my rearview mirror. 
Truth has consequences. Here's the deal with truth. You can either submit to truth or truth will submit you. Now, why else does truth matter? Well, because truth at its core, right, is ha- helps us to see our world. It underpins whatever worldview we have. And, and our worldviews, how we see things, that's the mental grid through which we, we make all of our life's decisions. Anybody remember Josh McDowell? Very famous apologist that, that wrote one of the leading um, um, books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict on Jesus. He's got a son, Sean McDowell, that goes around and speaks on college campuses all the time. And one of the things he talks about is, is because of colleges, it's, it's very, you know, posh today to go, oh, there's no such thing as truth. And so he goes and tries to explain that there is truth. So here's a little experiment. He asks everybody to close their eyes. So I'm going to ask everybody here to close your eyes. I promise I'm not going to touch you. So... <laughs> And if you're online watching, I want you to close your eyes too. Now, see, I can see you. Nobody's eyes are closed. Close them up. All right, now here's what I want you to do. Quickly, I want you to point to what direction southwest is from here. Go ahead, point. Everybody put a hand up and tell me which way southwest is. Everybody hands up high. Which way is southwest? Okay, now open your eyes and look at everybody's hands. I like my friend Steve is just pointing to the heavens. (laughs) It's up there. Now, see, here's the deal. If you looked around, the hands were going, I will give the Donnellys credit because they at least were going in the same direction. Makes for a very good marriage. But there were hands going in all different directions. Well, what's the truth? Right? Because if if I take your truth, what you perceive to be the truth, and I follow that, I'm going to wind up where I don't want to go. Right? Truth is a compass. It's it's directive. Truth helps us orient our lives correctly. It's a guide. It helps us know which way to go. It helps us know which decision we should make. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. Now, here's an amazing one. Today, Folks that fall into this relative truth camp, right? Well, you have your your truth, I'll have mine. They would say that truth exists, it's relative, right? But they would say, don't come at me with absolute truth. That's so limiting. Anybody who claims there's such a thing has got to be some kind of narcissist to think that he has some claim on absolute truth. It's likely just somebody with a power play trying to control me and tamp down my my individual self-expression. Now, we have to be honest. That could be true, right? There have been lots of people over the millennia that have claimed that they have absolute truth, and they have used it to control people, right? And, and, and to acquire power, and to put their group ahead of another group. In fact, right, that, that was one of the reasons Jesus got so mad at the Pharisees. They, they just kept coming up with their truth and holding people to it. What I want you to see is that this is both an ancient problem and a very modern-day problem. This concept, right, that, that in order to have... There can't be absolute truth, because if there was absolute truth, it would be too, too limiting to our freedom. The Supreme Court actually recently said that that's true. Check this out. U.S. Um, US Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, um, in a ruling in 1992... I don't know if Kerry's gotten the time to get that up yet. I, we, we had a, a screw-up in the back. That was my fault. But here's what Kennedy wrote in his decision. He goes, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and, at the, and the mystery of life. How about that? 
The Supreme Court agrees. There's no such thing as truth. Everybody should be able to define truth for themselves because otherwise you don't have freedom. Now look, there's no doubt that claims of absolute truth are dangerous. This is what the Pharisees did. This is why Jesus got so upset. You can weaponize these claims and suppress people with them. And despite what the naturalists would say, that there is no absolute truth, there's only opinion and cultural constructs, you guys know this, every worldview has at its heart a claim about absolute truth. The naturalists say there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's a claim about absolute truth. Maybe your kid's going to come home from college and go, Dad, I've been thinking about this. We've been deconstructing things over at school, and I now believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. You should look at them and say, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> because if you're absolutely sure, you just gave me an absolute truth, and apparently they don't exist. See? Everybody makes a claim to an absolute truth. You look at the individualists, right? For the individualists, you know, the you do, you boo type people, right? For individualists, they would say, I have my truth, you have your truth, but you have no right to demand that I comply with your moral values. Yet, if you, if you ask them, well, well, you know, what's at the center of, of your moral code? They would say tolerance. And I would say, okay, well, do I, have to be, do I have to be tolerant? And they would say, of course. So they would demand that I take their worldviews onto me. Don't you see, we all, have, we all have a claim that there is an absolute world truth. Everybody believes it whether they want to admit it or not. And absolute truths are limiting, which is why you, it's so important that you find the right absolute truth. Because the wrong ones lead to bad places too. But when you find the right one, it's the most freeing thing there is. Because, listen now, this is so important. True freedom does not exist in the absence of limits and boundaries. It's the presence of the right ones where you find freedom. They exist in the physical realm, right? Your body has limits in order to be free. If you just sit around on the couch all day, eating bonbons and never getting up. You are not free, right? My, my friend Greg one time told me he was watching a show on hoarders, and uh, one guy, they found him, and he, when they went into the house, he, had, he was a bajillion pounds, and he had not gotten out of the chair so long that his skin had actually grafted into the seat, okay? There is absolute truth relative to your body. If you do not do something with it, right, your freedom will be limited, okay? The, the funny part about that was Greg said they, they um, interviewed the person that found him. You, knew who, you know who found him? His girlfriend. Greg's like, he had a girlfriend? <laughs> so, so there are absolute truths uh, on the physical realm, but what about the moral and spiritual realm? You might say, well, that's true, okay? It's, it's true in the physical realm, but it's not true in the moral realm. It's not true in the spiritual realm. Oh, yeah? I mean, have you ever known anybody that, that decided that their number one life's pursuit was going to be money? Now, the scriptures, the Christian worldview has a lot to say about money, right? That you're stewards of it, that you shouldn't put it first in your life. But, but have you ever met anybody that goes, I don't care about that worldview. I have my own view, worldview, and it's all about money. How do their lives turn out? How do their relationships work? How is their health? You see, it's true on both sides. Lies bring slavery. Truth brings freedom because freedom only exists in the realm of right restrictions. 
Restraint for the modern man is, needs to be pulled away. The truth is restraint is good. This is why Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Pilate goes, well, what's the truth? Well, here's an answer. Sometimes we don't know either. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to speak of truth. We're, we're going to use the correspondence theory of truth, which says truth or falsity of a statement is determined on how it relates to the world and whether it actively describes the world as it is. In other words, if a statement is true, it matches up with reality. I have a belief, and again, right, just because I have a belief doesn't mean it's true. I have to test my belief against reality. I once had a belief I had a million dollars in my checking account. I really believed it. So much so, I started writing checks like I did. And the truth police showed up at my door to say, just because you believe it, it does not match up with objective reality. We tested your, your belief, and it's not true. So if I told you in, I live in Long Valley, New Jersey, would that be true? Yes. If I told you Long Valley is the capital of the United States, would that be true? No, it's false. It doesn't match reality. Now, Sean McDowell plays a little game with, with students. I think it's pretty funny. He goes, look, he goes, the key is that everybody uses the correspondence theory of truth every day until it comes to values or morality. And then all of a sudden, people redefine truth. He says, let me show it to you this way. I'll ask it. He uses ice cream and insulin as his examples. I'm going to use baseball teams. What is the best team to be a fan of? The best Major League Baseball team to be a fan of? Yell it out. I can't believe there's not a Met fan in this room. All right. The answer is the New York Mets. Right? That is the answer. The answer is the best team person or the best team to be a fan of is the New York Mets. Now, here's the deal. How can that be true for me, but not true for you? And the answer is because it's a subjective claim, right? It's a subjective truth. It's a matter of preference. So it can be true for me and not true for you. So when we talk about subjective truths, I'm going to ask you questions. Is this a subjective truth? You're going to think of the Mets. Every time a subjective truth question comes up, you go, oh, that's like the Mets being the best team. All right? Now, what if I told you the Mets had won the, the most World Series? Is that true or false? It pains me to say this. Who has won the most World Series? Evil still exists in this world. I've told you many times. Right? And so that is a different statement. That's not about preference or the subject, right? It's about the object. The Mets have won the World most World Series is an objective claim about the world, and it's false because objective claims can be true or false. You can measure them. So when we think of objective claims, I want you to think Yankees. Rock solid, right? Okay, so preference claim Mets, objective claim Yankees. Got it? First one, I want you to say Met, preference, Yankee, objective claim. Coke is better than Pepsi. Mets, claim of preference, right? Diet Coke has less calories than regular Coke. Yankees. George Washington was the first president of the United States. Yankees, right? It's history. It's provable, like the Yankees. It's an objective claim. George Washington was the best president of the United States. Mets. Preference claim, right? Depends on what you believe. It's not an objective claim about the world as it is. Two plus two equals four. Right? So math claims are objective claims. 
Here's the last one. The earth is the center of the universe. Is that a Met claim or a Yankee claim? Is it a, I didn't ask if it was true or false. Is it a subjective claim or an objective claim? It's a Yankee statement, right? Because you can test it and see that it's false. It's not the center of the universe. It's an objective claim. It's false, right? So you have objective claims. They can turn out when you measure them against reality to be not true. So here's what you said. Math, science, history, they're all objective. Now let's move to the moral category, the religious moral category. Now, I could pick ones that we try to, to uh, believers, Christians oftentimes, bash the world with. I'm not going to pick one of those, right? I'm going to look inside here. Sex before marriage is wrong. Yankees or Mets? Stun silence. <laughs> Yankees or Mets, right? Is that an objective statement? Or is that a subjective statement? This is a moral claim. And so anytime you have a moral claim, right, the question becomes about moral claims. Are they like the Mets, where their personal preference, or are they objective like the Yankees, who have won the most World Series? Do they have to do with... Uh, see, objective claims have to do with an independent world. Now, in our world of relative truth, right, somebody might say out there, well, John... If you don't believe in sex before marriage, that's your truth. You do you, boo. That's great. If you don't believe in sex before marriage, here's what you should do. Don't have it. Right? What they're doing is they're taking an objective question and making it a preference statement for you. They're turning it. Our world does this with moral claims. It, it takes them and says, well, it's like if you don't like coffee, drink tea, or if you don't like the fish, order chicken. They would say it's a matter of your truth. Since it's a moral question, it's subjective. To which McDowell, his brilliant line of answering, would follow up with this question. We'd go, okay, well, let me ask you this. Are you against slavery? And of course, the person just stops in his tracks and goes, well, of course I'm, I'm against slavery. And then he would retort, well, if you think you're against slavery, then don't own a slave. Are we against slavery because we don't like it or we don't prefer it? No. We're against slavery because it's objectively wrong to enslave and mistreat another human being. Don't you see that morality and religion and faith have objective truths too? Now, a couple things I, I, I got to finish up. Uh, I know it's cool today, right, to go with what, you know, you, you have your truth, I have my truth, right? You do you, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. By the way, that worldview, can I just pause on that for two seconds? It doesn't hold water. If you can do whatever you want to do, as long as you don't hurt anybody, you would have never broken up with anybody. You'd be married to that kid in eighth grade you were dating. <laughs> right? You'd never put anybody in prison. You'd never hold anybody accountable for their actions. Right? It ignores individual choice and that they might have societal impacts. I'll give you one example. People use this argument with pornography all the time. Oh, no, no, pornography is fine because it's not wrong. It's not hurting anybody. Really? Look at what the industry is doing to the mind of our children, to their sexual behaviors, to the way men see and interact with women, and to the women that are involved in that industry. I could go on and on. Please don't tell me that your personal behavior has no impacts on other people. It does. That's a lie. It's not true. See, when someone claims there's no moral right, no moral wrong, no absolutes, here's what I want you to do. The next time they tell you this, when you see them in that ridiculously long line at the ShopRite self-checkout register, just cut in front of them. 
right? And when they say, what are you doing? Go, what do you mean? Well, you can't cut in front of me. Why not? Right? Of course there is. We all know that there are. Here's the truth. Paul was right when he told the Romans, we all know the truth. That's why we want to be treated fairly and equitably. That's, that's universal. That's why we all b b believe that promises should be kept, right? It's an objective truth. It's part of being a human being and, and not a dog to know the difference between right and wrong. Absolute truth matters. It's important. It guides. It informs. It brings freedom when it's discovered. And not just some external code that you live by, but an eternal reality we all know. I'm going to show you what I mean. I bought this fish here with me today, right? And, and, and if you, anybody have fish at home? What do fish do sometimes when, when you're not home? Sometimes you'll come home and where are they? Dead. A lot of times they're dead because they jumped out of the bowl. This water is just so restrictive. Look at them out there. Their lives seem to be a lot better than my lives. In fact, I don't feel like being a fish today. I'm going to be a human being. And so, now I took the, I took the time to, this morning to already trap this guy because I practiced this yesterday in trying to get him out. Um, took a little longer than I thought. So I'm just going to take him out and put him here. Do you see the freedom this fish is enjoying right now? Free from all of the restrictions of the water. Right? I mean, isn't that what we see going on right now? <laughs> now, see, here's the thing. Right? I could go on with this a little longer, but, but it's starting to bother some of you, isn't it? There's two things you should know. Number one, goldfish can live for up to three hours outside of water. Number two, I didn't really put a fish in there because I knew somebody would get upset and email me. <laughs> but I wanted you to feel like there was a fish in there. Why? Because you knew something inside of you was not right about that. Who told you that was not right? Nobody had to tell you. It was written on your heart. You don't kill a fish to make a stupid sermon point. Who told you that? I don't know. I just know. Here's how Paul explained it. He said, indeed, when the Gentiles, people who don't know the law of God by nature, do things required by the law, they're a law for themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And guys, they are written on your heart too. They're written on your children's hearts and your neighbor's hearts too. How did Jesus see things? He saw and he knew there was an absolute and objective truth. It existed. It wasn't relative. Everybody could not possibly have their own. And he also knew that this truth was not some kind of dehumanizing list of you better do this and not do that. For Jesus, truth wasn't an abstract absolute truth. It wasn't some divine directives to comply with. For Jesus, truth was not a principle. Truth was a person. That's why he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the light. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There are a lot of worldviews out there. There are a lot of ways to see things. There are a lot of God claims out there. And most people, including some of our own children, will deny the truth of God because they believe that a relationship with God, it's just got to be dehumanizing. It's just so one way, right? I have to give up all of my freedoms and my liberties and my self-expressions. It's just so exploitive and oppressive but not with this God. 
There is only one God that says the absolute truth became a person and went to the cross for you. He gave up his rights, his freedom, his authority. You know the verse, he made himself nothing. He took on the, the, the nature of a servant. Being found in appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. And he did it because there are absolute truths that we are sinners in need of a savior and that despite it all, God still loves us enough to fix it all at his cost. Friends, that is the truth. You go live it. Let's stand and close this off.